Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Allison Ryu, for the introduction to our guest today, Madeline Hayden. Madeline is the founder and CEO of NutPods. NutPods is a dairy-free half-and-half alternative made from almonds and MCT-rich coconuts in a convenient, easy-to-use coffee creamer. What I most appreciated from this conversation was just how open Madeline was about talking about the beginnings of Nut Pods. She didn't come from a food and beverage background, and she took on also a lot of risk. But now she's leading this business to such incredible heights. It's really a fascinating story. Without further ado, here's Madeline. Madeline, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you, Mike? Oh, I'm doing really, really well. I'm really excited to have you join us. So I want to start at the very beginning. What was your attraction to entrepreneurship? I never actually set out to be an entrepreneur. I created this product because I was tired of waiting around for the big food companies to come out with one. But even when I took an entrepreneurship class and when I was working on my MBA at night, I remember at the end of the class, you know, he had asked like, how many of you still want to be entrepreneurs now knowing everything? And it's like, "Mm." (laughs) I took my hand down because there was just so much risk involved in being an entrepreneur. And as much as we celebrate, you know, about all of the victories, it's like, there's a lot of people and failures. And at heart, I am financially very conservative. I have a very humble background. I know what it's like to, to risk everything. And my parents, you know, are immigrant refugees from Vietnam. So that's why I'm so financially conservative. And so when it came to that, it's been a surprising twist in life, but one that's been life-changing and one I'm very grateful for. And I really appreciate you sharing that. So despite you being very risk averse, you still decided to become an entrepreneur. And despite uh, taking the entrepreneur class and kind of putting your hand down, so to speak, after you've heard about all the risks and also all the challenges that you have to go through and all the very, you know, it seems like working around the clock, talk to me a little bit about the insight that you learned that kind of influenced you to start Nut Pods and really why you decided to dive on it, especially considering that you also didn't come from a food background. Because it was something bigger than myself. It was something where... I was lactose intolerant. I realized, gosh, 30 to 40 million Americans are lactose intolerant in this country, plus probably another 10 to 15 million that opt to dairy-free lifestyle. And we're still stuck with these processed creamers from the 1980s. And I was tired of having powdered non-dairy creamer as my other option. And I just realized, you know, also at the same time, I was pregnant with my second daughter. I had gestational diabetes because I was an older mom. And there was literally nothing on the market for someone like me. And so for me, I thought, you know, not only would help me, 
But it would help a lot of people in this country not only have an option that works for them, because everything at the time had added sugars and everything for the most part had processed creamers uh, that had, you know, processed ingredients. I just wanted to have a better option for people. And I wanted to help other people. I've always gravitated towards helping other people, whether or not it's the community with blood banking, whether or not it was, you know, public access to fibrillation. That's just where my heart really has been is, is being able to help communities and help other people. And this is another iteration of that. I still feel today that you know, consumers want and need to have a better option. It's it's so easy to say, oh, well, you know, just choose a healthier option. But what if there aren't healthier options on the marketplace to choose from? And so that's why I'm really glad to, you know, have started a Kickstarter campaign, find out I'm pregnant with gestational diabetes. Am I the only one who's really picky about creamers? And I had proof of concept, people around the world saying, I would love to see this in my cafe in Mexico, or I have a coffee shop, you know, in in um, Europe. I'd love to see this in my paleo cafe in Australia. And I realized, wow, this is actually global. Like all, everyone around here would like to have a better option with something that is enjoyed every day, multiple cups a day. And so why not have a go? And then instead of waiting for someone else to come up with this, like create the solution that works for me and works for other people. We had 510 Kickstarter backers that backed us around the world. Like I said, a lot of them knew I couldn't ship them samples. It would be like, you know, back rewards shipping to us only. And they still backed us. Wow. And so it just really talked about that people were, were looking for something like this. And anytime that you see consumers doing DIY options, like making their own creamers at home, you know, that there's certain traction about people trying to make their own solution to what's missing in the marketplace. Absolutely. So from the Kickstarter campaign, I guess you saw that there was a demand with the 510 backers. I would love to also focus on the supply. So what was that process like? How did you think about the formula? How do you think about constructing nut pods? What was kind of going through your brain in terms of how to actually create your product? I was so green and I had taken a class at Chapman University. I don't think they're doing it now, but it was a wonderful program called From Recipe to Retail. And it talked about everything that you needed to know about taking something from your kitchen recipe all the way to commercial production. And from there, I had met wonderful speakers, you know, stalked them on LinkedIn afterwards, tried to get a lot of free information about that. But I didn't know I was a consumer and I was trying to learn as quickly as I could how to become a food manufacturer. So I did everything wrong, Mike. I called co-packers saying the worst thing possible you could say, which is, hi, I'm a CEO of a startup. And of course, they don't want your startup business. <laughs> it's too small of a, of a volume and too risky. And so, and then I really didn't understand at the time what it took to take something into commercial production. An example of that is I really wanted pink Himalayan salt because it's fancier. It's pink Himalayan salt. And so it, of course it makes your creamer a little bit elevated. And when I was making my kitchen formula, I was in love with the William Sonoma Tahitian vanilla extract. William Sonoma does not supply 
like wholesale <laughs> for commercial production. And so, and those are just small things that, you know, you realize that you can't access it. It's not available. They're not going to take all of these cans of Thai kitchen coconut cream and open it up with a can opener for commercial production. And so it was a steep learning curve for me to learn how to source my original supply chain and even learn the vendors that are making huge quantities for commercial production, as well as navigating the co-packing landscape, which is not for the faint of heart, especially in aseptic. Was that difficult to maybe comprehend or just take in? Like, hey, I wanted to use all of these ingredients that actually weren't made for commercial production. I know you obviously found a way, but what was that like? Because I'd imagine early on that maybe was like a slight hiccup where that could have easily probably deterred a lot of, of entrepreneurs, but, but not yourself. That was a two-year hiccup. It was a six-figure two-year hiccup. So we had raised $30,000 in Kickstarter campaigns. And I had read somewhere on the internet that like a commercial formulation can cost about $10,000. So I was thinking, okay, so I'm going to double it and then have extra funds just for Kickstarter back rewards and postage and handling, you know, recoup some costs. So $30,000 should be fine. That's like one trial. And I ended up having 28 trials of trying to get the formula to work. Because remember, Mike, at the time, when everyone was making pledges of carrageenan free and removing carrageenan from the formula, we never formulated without it. We were unsweetened. We were a blend of almond and coconut, which didn't exist at the time. So we were really doing all these new things. Plus, on top of everything, being non-GMO, project verified, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, Whole30 approved. That's a lot to ask of a brand new product that has not yet been created in the marketplace. And I would say, although I would have thought you were crazy if you told me this and probably felt a little insulted, but my ignorance at the time really helped protect me. Because when you are a first-time entrepreneur, you know, you have this optimism where it's like, it can't be that hard. It's not like we're going to Mars or building like an iPhone. We're literally just making a healthier non-dairy creamer. And so it can't be that hard. And that naivety really helped me push forward. And even when the money was gone and it came time for, we're close, we're going to need to have another trial, which was another $40,000. And you know, it was either liquidate my 401k or try and raise money again from family and friends. You know, I talked to my husband about liquidating 401k and he's, he was an investment banker at the time. Now he's my CFO. And he said, no, don't do it. This is retirement. Everyone will tell you not to do it. We can try and raise more money. It's going to take some more time, but you know, let's try and raise money from people that are credit investors because we ain't accredited investors. <laughs> and so, and I told him, I said, no, I said, I don't want to take another dollar from somebody else if I'm not willing to, to risk my own dollar. And I just felt like we, we weren't that far away. And so it felt like you're pushing your chips in the center of that casino table. You're all in. And I was so scared, Mike. And it was the last run that went well enough that we could launch. And so, but it was, it was so terrifying 
And we were already working with people that had developed non-dairy creamers before. So it's not like, oh, we're going to go work with extra smart, like food scientists or extra smart food technologists. We were already working with people that this was their gig and it was really hard doing what we were trying to do, but we were able to do it. We launched and uh, we haven't looked back since. That's really inspiring. It was terrifying because my husband was working full time. I wasn't making a dollar. I wasn't paying myself. So he was supporting a family of four and this new venture. And so, and it was really, I mean, you go through all of your like scuzzy parent moments where the only date you can afford is to go out on a happy hour menu and, you know, you check your bank balance and you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe we should, uh, maybe we should just have a walk on the beach. <laughs> and, and I remember one time, you know, I had to pay the babysitter when I had a meeting and I didn't have any cash on me. And literally, Mike, like, honest to gosh, we paid Emily back, but we had to borrow money from her piggy bank. And you feel like totally scummy parents. And so, but these are the things that you just, you get through and you go through all of your, all of your college credit card games where you're doing balance transfers to the next card that has 0% APR. I mean, these are the risks that you take, not reputationally, not the rejection, but doing the huge amount of financial risk that I thought I would not do in that entrepreneur class that I ended up doing, including personally guaranteeing a five-year lease for our first office that we grew out, you know, that we all grew in like eight months. I'm still personally guaranteed on that first office. (laughs) I've got three more years left. So it's a huge amount of risk that entrepreneurs take along with the reputational risk, along with the rejection. But when it works out, it also is an incredible journey and you learn so much about yourself and being able to see how you work under pressure, how committed and passionate you are and how you problem solve and build teams. And it's really an incredible journey that is unlike any other. Oh, that's wow. It's really, really amazing. So when you actually had that batch that was good enough to be commercialized for, that was acceptable to your standards and also for the government regulations and, and what have you, was that to fulfill the orders on Kickstarter or was that also to look at as well, looking at other distribution channels as well for that one? That was to launch because we needed to make good on our Kickstarter backers, but we also needed to get going because you know, this had been two years of formulation work and we just really needed to get out there before we lost our first mover advantage. It was only a matter of time, I I think, before people looked at a nut-based option for coffee creamers. And I didn't want to lose that advantage. Take us through the launch in terms of how you thought about distribution. What were your distribution channels and where were you spending the majority of your time? I happen to have a friend of a friend who worked at a local grocery store and she had tried my product with hesitation because she didn't want to say like, mm, interesting. <laughs> and so, but she sincerely liked our product and, you know, set up a meeting for a buyer to meet with me and try the product. And it was very much like, hey, I can set up the meeting and then you're on your own. And so I went and we got into PCC Natural Markets. It's a small chain up in the Northwest where where we're from. And they were wonderful. They were able to take us. They were able to help us get our first regional distributor 
because we didn't have a distributor signed up. And we really kind of cut our teeth into how do we sell into a grocery store? And even though I was guns blazing, ready to go into so many other different grocery stores, we decided, you know, we have to set up on Amazon next because we have to be able to allow the 510 Kickstarter backers to be able to reorder our product. And the only way to set up overnight distribution like that was with Amazon. So we set up a 3PL experience, you know, a 3PL relationship. And that was all we could do for probably the first three years of our business was just hand to mouth, like being paid, buying packaging, buying ingredients, making the product, selling it. And we couldn't afford to go into many other grocery stores because we didn't have the money to set up brokers and distributors and a salesperson. And so that's really how we did the first three years. We also knew that this was a time for us to be patient with our brand and to do all of the fine tuning things that we really needed to know what works for our brand. Are we a dairy-free creamer? Are we a non-dairy creamer? Are we plant-based creamer? Are we a plant-based alternative to half and half? Or do we say we're a plant-based creamer? So all of these finessings about trying to position your product and whether or not it was unsweetened or whether or not it was clean labeled, like which is more important to consumers. And so, so many things that came with advantages of selling on Amazon while we were also working on selling into stores. We had superior cash flow, net 15 as a seller on Amazon. We had reviews. I mean, you don't get reviews through spins or IRI. You get, did you sell more? <laughs> did you get a lift from a promotion? But we were able to find out whether or not our flavors translated, even though we were unsweetened. We were able to find out what people thought about our mouthfeel and our taste and our texture. And we were also able to find out what states are our priority distribution because California, New York, Florida were like among our top five states dates that we were selling to online. And when we were ready to go into distribution, it provided us a priority map of where to set up distribution first. It, it also allowed us to know our customers in terms of like, are they buying French vanilla and hazelnut or are they just loyal to the French vanilla as well as how often are they reordering? So all of these things allowed us to really know our consumer more and be able to make smarter decisions. And when you're small and when you have constraints like capital, the decisions you make have to be smarter ones because you just can't afford to make the wrong decisions, undo and redo. And that includes price point as well. For the Amazon reviews, you were actually looking at the reviews, almost determining or using that to help you determine what your marketing position or your brand positioning would be. Is that, is, is that kind of accurate? Exactly. So we would try different ways to find out keyword searches and be able to find different ways to understand what the consumer was looking for. Facebook ads about did they click more when we were a plant-based creamer versus a plant-based half and half? Uh, did unsweetened become a hook more than, you know, a, a healthy, clean plant-based creamer, non-dairy versus plant-based versus dairy-free. So all of these little things 
really help you finesse your brand in terms of positioning, but also in terms of validating. Again, pricing is so critical because you have to get it right. And if you miss and you need to adjust your price up, retailers don't like that. If you aren't selling well because you're you're not price competitive, you have to drop your prices. It's a three-day commitment, right? It's a three-month commitment. And then you have to pay extra for the retailers to put out the little TPR tags. So it's very costly versus on Amazon or on your own website, you can just flip the price, $14.95, $14.75, $13.95. What does that do for your velocity? So taking the time to really understand our brand and understand where we fit in a competitive landscape was so important. And, and it's hard to be patient when you need money and you need to be able to turn around and get some velocity, but it really is necessary for any new brand. Yeah, it's really cool and really neat how you use Amazon also as your feedback loop and very immediate feedback loop from customers testing pricing, testing even on your actual packaging, what to actually put in your products in terms of how you actually describe your product. That's really interesting because you don't get that when you actually go wholesale. You don't know how customers are going to respond to um, dairy-free versus uh, something else. So that's really, really cool. You end up realizing your channels have different obstacles and different strengths, right? So it's like, in terms of scaling your brand, retail is pretty hard to match. Just the amount of consumers still going to the grocery store buying, you know, and it really allows you to stand out in some ways where you are in your set, but you're probably within maybe eight or 10 different competitive brands within your set. Online, you can be competing in the digital landscape that's very crowded, hard to stand out, and infinity brands because so many brands can exist online. I would also say the other thing too is one thing that I also found is the control piece. The control piece is like you work so hard to get accepted into that retailer. And you finally made it on shelf and you see your baby and it looks so great on shelf and you think you've made it. But then you realize, oh, shoot, your regional distributor only delivers two times a week. And if your category manager isn't on top and sees that you're going to stock out, that the critical moments, you know, the critical months where people are looking to see how well you're selling and you're stocked out because you were relying on the category manager to replace orders and he missed. And now you're going to be stocked out for four days. It's really maddening because you, you just don't have the same amount of control versus online, you know, you can control your inventory levels, control your replenishment. And so having that amount of control and especially over your price is also really critical. I'd love to know when you did decide to raise capital and you were looking at at VC funds, were you looking for a partner that maybe understood retail and really understood like the wholesale um, channels? Or were you looking for a partner that more understood, okay, how do I optimize my brand online or very interested in terms of the digitally native component? When I started out, I was looking for a partner that had money that was green. And so, and that is the truth because everyone talks to you about value added and about (laughs) all this, all this experience of having the right partner. And you're all like, I don't have any experience in this industry. I'm pregnant. I'm a female. I'm a person of color. Like you might've heard me say on other podcasts, I felt like a blind three-legged dog. And of course I'm, you know, like not in Silicon Valley, right? (laughs) So And it was extremely hard for me to raise money. It's extremely hard for anyone to raise money. But I think I had unique challenges. 
And we went through family and friends first. My husband, even though he was an investment banker, he was able to make connections. But after that, I was on my own, right? Because we still have to be bankable for people. And so remember back in 2013 when I started, and even 2015 when we actually launched, e-commerce did not have the same amount of cloud as a channel. It was an afterthought channel. It was after drug, after mass, after convenience, sure, go ahead and try and pick up, you know, an extra 15, 20% of your sales on online. And so we were able to find some forward-looking syndicated, you know, institutional funds and investors that could see the future of e-com, could see that we were building the business even though it was a little bit unconventional in a way that actually made a lot of sense. We weren't rushing into retail. We were taking the time to learn all of the things that I talked to you about, you know, online while learning how to succeed in supporting our limited retail distribution in the Northwest. And we were able to build metrics behind our brand that had a lot of intelligence behind them and real numbers behind them. So those investors that could see that we were building a different kind of company with a different route to market, they became the ones that were by default, the ones that were going to be a little bit more digitally savvy, you know, understand digitally native brands, which made them more compatible with where we were at the time. When you were pitching to investors, what were some of their main reasons why they said no or turned you down? I didn't have any formal training. I didn't come from Blue Blood. I didn't come from Suja or Vitamin Water or, <laughs> you know, um, I remember one investor said, so did you formulate this with a chef? And I said, no. Did you formulate this with anybody that, that had a professional palate? No, but I, I think it tastes pretty good. <laughs> and so... And um, I also had people that just were afraid to bank on someone who had never been a CEO before, never been in the food and beverage space. And so I remember also hearing, okay, well, we just, you know, like what you're doing. We'd love to see you get into more store distribution. We'd get into more store distribution. We'd get to the $1 million mark and they'd be like, wonderful. looks like you're really getting some traction. Come back when you're, when you have $5 million. We're like, what? What? Wait, you just said $1 million. I met it. I met it. You're moving the goalposts. And so, and then I was also learning along the way about, you know, risk and reward and about venture is going to be more risk tolerant than private equity. And just learning about how to, how to look for the right investors. The, the right investors might come later. They come at your growth round. That's when you want your value added. That's when you want someone who knows the space because it's also not only understanding your space, but having realistic expectations because they're familiar with some of the, you know, some of the conundrums that are in grocery. The ones that are early on, you know, I mean, gosh, bless them. There's a time and a place for silent investors and they're at the beginning. <laughs> Your money is green. They'll let you do what, what you think is best. And uh, they'll just watch and be happy not to have you call on them for so much. And so they're great partners for, for the early stages. That's so funny. So what are some of the differences raising from venture capitalists and also private equity groups that you found? 
Well, I think one of the things is just understanding about the nature of venture capital is, you know, they will write smaller checks. They will invest earlier in the brand. You still have to have traction, but you don't have to have the same amount of scale. And also being able to understand that they're a little bit less hands-on because they have however many portfolio companies in their fund. You know, private equity is going to be a little bit more hands-on. They're going to have a little bit more control. Even if they're minority investors, they're still going to be much more active with your business day-to-day. They can tolerate less failures, less singles and doubles because they're really looking for the ones that are going to stand out and deliver the returns that they're needing. And so I think also understanding the terms and the returns that venture versus private equity is looking for. And I'll keep the numbers confidential to my investors, but they are different. And so being able to understand, you know, when you're ready and being able to to look at the different type of funds is really important. Um, after the early stage, and maybe you found quote unquote product market fit, where you actually had a lot of sales, um, you had a few million in sales, and now you really wanted to scale the business. How did you think about new distribution channels and new maybe growth levers for nut pots? Well, first, we took a look at our brand strategy, and we were never set out to be winners in all different categories, right? So it's like it's hard to be a platform brand. You have to have a different capitalization structure to be able to go into different areas of the grocery store and be able to win. And so for me, I just wanted to be really good and win in one category, plant-based creamers. And so for us, when we set up distribution, we set up number one, is our product a fit for the channel? Meaning we're not really a fit for food service, right? We're an unknown brand. We're way too expensive. And truth be told, they probably want the little single serve coffee meat cups because it's food service and it's a condiment and it's typically given away for free. So we didn't enter food service. We didn't enter, you know, drugstore or mass at the time. So we just concentrated where we were, which is natural grocery store. And then we ended up going into conventional and you have to allow your brand to find its own path. Because even though we were all those things, non-GMO project verified, vegan, gluten-free, whole 30, you know, and kosher, we actually found much quicker traction on the conventional grocery side than we did in natural, which you would think is the reverse. But Whole Foods came like way later than Kroger did. (laughs) And so, and we went where the doors were open, where it was still kind of scary. I remember when Wegmans came, it's like, so our price is just the price and you just have to work because there's no, there's no sales at, at Wegmans. It's an EDLP. And so you're just like crossing your fingers that that consumers would like your product and pay your prices as a premium product because I could never be as cheap as Danone or Silk or So Delicious. I could only compete on a differentiated benefit set and a different brand experience. And so we looked at what we could produce in terms of format, you know, of co-packers, like this co-packer can do this. This works for the natural channel. It works for the conventional channel. It even works in mass. So those are the places where we can go. We took a look at where we had distributors set up. And so distributors in different channels are totally different. 
you know, you would love for them all to be the same, but Cisco and, and U.S. Foods is squarely in food service. And we took a look at where we could support it. I mean, we were already paying for our sales team, for brokers, distributors, you know, we couldn't afford to do that in all these other channels right off the bat. So we had to grow. And so we sold where it made sense to grow with the capital that we could support with at the time. And we didn't go into all of our crazy flavors that we have now back in year one or year two. You had three options. You had French vanilla, hazelnut, and original. And that was it. And so as you grow, then you can make new flavors. Then you can make new sizes. But you got to find out if you have something that resonates with consumers first and foremost. How do you feel like your brand has evolved from when you started? I know like in packaging, for example, I talked to a few brand consultants with their packaging needs and they tell me how usually when there's also a digitally native brand, usually it might not work for retail, the packaging. It might have to be different colors or brighter or just something different. I'd love to know how you think about your brand as it relates to packaging, but also just how you think about yourselves in the market. Well, when I was doing my Kickstarter, I thought we were going to be literally the single serve little coffee made cups. We were nut pods made from nuts in little pods. We couldn't do it. We couldn't launch in food service. Nobody knew who we were. We couldn't get any traction on the minimum order quantities. And the Whole Foods, when they had their foragers, they said, have you thought about making a carton? We're like, no, we're nut pods. You know, we want to be in the little cups. And he said, well, you know, it's interesting, but um, we have a consumer might buy a carton every week. So let us know if you come out with that. So we are still nut pods without the pods because it's what's inside the format, which is unsweetened, balanced, neutral taste, you know, with all of these clean ingredients. And so, and it also allowed us to see our brand bigger, which is we are beyond the format of just pods because then we couldn't ever get into any bigger sizes. And so, and then we also had the next pivot, which is, oh, we had so many people that wanted to try nut pods, but they were allergic to almonds or coconuts. So we wanted to give an allergen friendly option, which is our oat line. But can we do that if we're nut pods? <laughs> and so, and then we had the next iteration, which is, yes, we are the better, better for you food company that creates delicious plant-based creamer. We're not married to almonds and coconuts only. Conceivably with a name like nut pods, we could look at pecans or cashews but also not limit ourselves to uh, an emerging format like oat. So we have our oat line. And so I think for us, when I take a look at our brand, number one, you know, we're still within the realm of doing one thing really well, which is plant-based creamers. We won't ever have anything with dairy. And so we just want to be able to have products that solve a market gap for our consumers, whether or not they're looking for something that's zero grams of sugar, oat, or, you know, having a sweetened line that's still zero grams. So being able to take a look at, you know, can we go into functionals? Sure, we can take a look at functionals. Can we do it well? And is it providing, you know, an option or is it just something more to sell? And so for us, we want to make sure that it has a benefit and we're solving a need rather than just something more to sell. That's fascinating. Um, I really, really, I really enjoyed learning about how you started off very, very specific, very, very niche because you only had two SKUs, but then you actually had to brand, like 
almost broaden what the brand truly stands for, where you're at today. And then also think about how each individual new SKU, new flavor of nut pods is within that. That's really interesting. And you also have to learn about, you know, if you want to be thought of as a thought leader, you have to be able to take some risks. So we've taken risks with our flavors because we want to reinvent the way that you think about plant-based coffee creamers where they have to have be full of sugar in order to taste good. And so we've tried products where like toasted marshmallow does not really exist in syndicated data. You won't find that in the top 15 list of International Delight or Coffee Mate, but we had a really delicious formula and we tried it out and it ended up being a really big hit. And we ended up also like right now, you know, we're launching a cotton candy, which you're like, er, like <laughs> you're unsweetened, but it is a fun flavor. It's also meant to have consumers remember that we are constantly daring to push the boundaries and on flavors. Do you think that daring also come, stems from too, since you didn't come from traditional, you know, food and beverage that, that in terms of this experimentation? Yes, because the way that we build our business is different because I'm not classically trained in big CPG. We're not going to have all of the same tools that big CPG will do. I mean, they'll probably do a focus group. They'll probably do surveys, but The thing that I kind of take with a grain of salt with that, no disrespect to companies that do focus groups and surveys, what a consumer says that they will do is very different than what they actually will do. Oh, I totally support recycled products. Wait a second. Would you actually pay 30% more? Yes, I will. No, they don't. They don't want to. It's the same thing as like nobody cops up to buying McDonald's and yet McDonald's shares keeps going up there. Um, You always take that with a grain of salt. And you have to be able to take risks because if you play it too safe, you're not really a thought leader if you're playing it safe, right? What were some of the key reasons why you believe that you were so successful and Nut Pods has been such a massive hit? I would say number one, first and foremost, we had a we had a real market fit. So at the time, you know, yes, there was some prescience in wanting to have a brand that was authentic and differentiated, right? Genuine, authentic brands. And a lot of my lens has been from the viewpoint of a consumer. So I haven't lost that lens even today. And so I built a product that I would have wanted to buy as a consumer. And then I built a brand that I would have wanted to support as a consumer. And so I think number one, people were looking for a product like NutPods. They were looking for something that was healthier, something that wasn't processed ingredients and something that, you know, allowed them to have their preferred sweetener and sweetness level. I think number two is we were really aided by the growth of e-com. And so it certainly has, you know, for Amazon, they're challenging to be sure, and they are hard to navigate, but our brand would not be here today without Amazon as a platform you know, supporting us through our early years as we learned our brand. And so the growth of e-com, and I think also just we're already ahead of the curve in terms of like unsweetened. And that was intended to be not that I'm going to look down at my long nose and say, Mike Gilb, are you grabbing the granulated sugar? You know, but we wanted people to be able to choose their own preferred sweetener and sweetness level. Now, I have my own thoughts about sugar. Do we really need to have 38 grams of sugar in a grande? Probably not, but it's about choice. 
And so if people are looking for a brand that, you know, is transparent, that has these great benefits, that executes on the taste, then they should take a look at nut pods. And so it was a product fit. It was a channel fit. We were able to take advantages of the growth of e-com. And it was also focusing on developing a great product, but a brand behind that so that then your your benefits that can't be copied by other brands. And then all of a sudden you're commoditized. So while we were talking about our attributes early on, we're also really working hard to make a connection with the consumers, to be able to listen to them, be able to have a differentiated product experience for them so that it's a great product, but it's also a great customer experience because as a consumer, I'm always disappointed when I like the products, but the service is terrible. And it just makes you kind of turn off a little bit on the brand. I wanted our customer service experience, which is why we created the Happy Sipping Guarantee, to match what our our product was for consumers. How do you think about where you started and where you are now in terms of just market reaction in terms of for health and wellness brands when it comes to food and beverage? Because it seems like the landscape now has has changed quite a lot. There's so much consumer choice. Do you think that, that the consumers change? I mean, now you have, of course, of the big CPGs launching a lot of brands of their own private label brands in, in some cases that are you know organic or better for you. How do you think about today's landscape? It has changed drastically. A lot of the things that you had mentioned on. So, you know, consumers can't unknow what they've learned. So they now know about their food choices and we're not going to go back as the society say, you know what, Mike, I miss the good old days of artificial flavors and colors. We should bring that back, you know, and revive those. And let's bring back like partially hydrogenated oils. Miss those days. And so, you know, not only have big CPG food brands have entered the space and, you know, entered the space via acquiring smaller brands or incubating smaller brands like, you know, Danone just launched one that's honest to goodness. That's that's directly competitive to ours. We also have co-packers that have entered the space with their own brands of Better For You. In addition, retailers have also responded as well. It used to be much more bifurcated with the natural channel versus the conventional channel. But now conventional grocery understands that they need to be able to have those natural better for you options along with the Cheetos, along with the fruit roll-ups. And so now the landscape has changed in so many different ways. And the amount of money that is available to startups. I wish it was around when I was raising money. Yeah, but I was raising money when like being a female entrepreneur wasn't as cool as it is now. (laughs) But it's good to see the industry change, the consumer at the end of the day benefits. They will benefit from more choices. They will benefit from having more brands access capital in which to incubate and grow um, challenger brands. And so, and we're giving big CPG a, a good run for their money. Absolutely. So what is one thing that you would change regarding venture capital? You know, one thing I, I would really like to challenge them is that they are looking so much for disruptors. And yet they're looking in all of the usual places for people to disrupt. And it's just not going to happen. If you have someone who's has the experience that they're looking for, that's been in the food and beverage space for the last 25 years and have launched 
a brand or two, you know, people are creatures of habit and they, they go off of what they know and experience is good, but it should be coupled with fresh lenses. And it's hard to have a fresh lens from inside an industry. Sometimes it takes that fresh lens from outside an industry to, to disrupt it. And that's why I also have a theory that entrepreneurs that are successful in a category, when they try a new venture, they are more successful in a new vertical that they're not familiar with because they need to have that fresh lens. I completely agree about the fresh lens. It's actually powerful coming outside the industry. I mean, what I kind of think about, which I believe you touched on, is what I almost challenge as well venture capitalists to do is to focus on actually where the demand is rather than the supply. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you first started Nut Pods, even though you came from outside the industry, the reaction, for example, at your Kickstarter was amazing, right? So that demand even though you're still figuring out the supply, you didn't come from that background, so you, and it took you two years to figure out, the demand was there, right? Instead of someone, not to say they couldn't do this, but maybe someone who, who worked in CBG for 25 years, maybe had the supply all figured out, you know, um, back to bones. But in terms of the actual demand, maybe demand wasn't there, right? But you're betting the fact that you actually, that, that the person knows the supply super well and how to actually create the product rather than looking at what, what the consumer actually wants. Yes, agree. And I would also say the other thing too is I would like the VC community to understand that entrepreneurs, especially when they come from an outsider perspective, they're not going to be as well-versed between common shares, preferred shares, series A, like all of that stuff. That doesn't mean that we're unsophisticated. It means that this is a new area for us. And so, you know, look for the caliber of our strategy. Look for the caliber of how we're building our team thoughtfully, of how we're thinking about raising money, and then work with us as the partner that you say that you're going to be. Work with us to see past a little bit of the rough edges if we are still learning about, you know, what's a safe versus a convertible note versus a promissory note. All that lingo jargon that is truly like a whole new level set that you have to learn. I happen to be married to an investment banker who was like my personal tutor and helping me learn all that stuff. But it was, it was really steep. And especially not knowing all the pre-money, post-money valuation and fully diluted, blah, blah, blah. You know, understand what really matters, which is the strategy of the business. And then you come along and you help provide the funds and help us understand a little bit more about the investment side. They have to understand the terms of their deal for sure. They have to get there because if they don't, they're really putting themselves in a, you know, undesirable disadvantaged position, right? And so, but I would say I've introduced people to where I think that they really have a great concept and that they just aren't polished when it comes to investors because they're learning. They're trying to learn so much about the industry and the product and the business, and they have to learn all about raising money. It's it's a lot to learn. Madeline, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been so much fun. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. And looking forward to keeping in touch. And thanks so much for coming off this podcast. You're also on the list of like, heck, I wish you were around when I was starting. It was, it's a lot of great information for other entrepreneurs. Madeline, thank you so much. That's really kind. Thank you. Thank you. 
And there you have it. It was so awesome chatting with Madeline. I really hope you all enjoyed. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 